And uh, I, I was remarking to Katie on the way here that either I'm preaching to the heritage faithful or the heritage crazy. Maybe both, as Russ Corson pointed out. He said, maybe both. So uh, I think that's probably the case. It's not good to insult your congregation before you preach. Um, but, you know, I'm reminded that even in small groups, great things can happen because remember Spurgeon's conversion? Wandered into this little Methodist chapel one night. God saved him through a very inept preacher. And uh, I think that's what, that's in his volume one of his biographies. It's just a great story. And um, so you never know. Uh, this past week, oh, by the way, those who are listening or watching on the Internet, I'm preaching to you tonight too. So I want you to know that you're in my heart and mind. And you're in our hearts and minds as well. Uh, this past week, I've been teaching on the Middle Ages in my sixth grade social studies class. And um, those of you who are familiar with that time period know that one of the major events of the Middle Ages was the Crusades, where Pope Urban II rallied the people of Europe to take up arms and head across Europe to seize control of the Holy Land from the Muslim Turks. And through violence and death, so-called Christians marched across Europe and began to wage war against Muslims in order to recapture that land for Christ. And as I was thinking, as I was teaching that and interacting with kids about that, my my thoughts turned to this sermon this week because the topic that we're going to look at in the book of Jude is how do we fight for the faith? And uh, I think we're going to see that God has called us to fight for the faith vastly different from the crusaders of the Middle Ages. So would you go back with me tonight one more time to the to the little letter of Jude, and we're going to consider verses 17 through 23. We skipped over those last week, and we're coming back to them tonight. Well, I want to remind us that Jude wrote his letter as a call for Christians to fight for the faith. We saw that in verse 3 and 4. And in previous weeks, we've observed some prerequisites that Jude gives for defending the faith. First, We need to know who we are. We need to know our identity, and Jude gives us that in verses 1 and 2 as the called, loved, and kept of God. But secondly, we must not only know our identity, we have to know our enemy. We have to know those who would be out to undermine our confidence in the gospel, the ungodly false teacher that seeks to advance a doctrinal or moral agenda that is contrary to the gospel. In other words, they're teaching something that is contrary to what Christ or the apostles taught, and they're behaving in ways that are contrary to what the the Savior and, and his apostles taught. So we must not only know our enemy identity and know our enemy, we also must know our Savior who's able to keep us from succumbing to the influence of such false teachers and to present us blameless in the presence of his glory with great joy. And we saw that last week in verses 24 and 25. So tonight, Jude teaches us one more thing we must know. What is our responsibility in fighting for the faith? What is our responsibility? What does it mean to contend for the faith? How do we fight for the faith? This is the question I want us to talk about tonight. So Doug Moo, a New Testament scholar and commentator, writes of these verses that we're going to consider tonight. Verses 17 to 23 are the most important in the letter of Jude. It is here that Jude spells out how he wants his readers to, quote, contend for the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. So it's here that he wants to tell us specifically how we are to fulfill 
this call that he gives us in verse 3 to contend for the faith, how we're supposed to do that, he tells us in verse 17. You know, this letter has relatively few commands in it, really just two, maybe three. And the first one is in verse 3 where he says to contend for the faith. And then there are several commands that he gives in verse 17 to 23. But other than that, the letter is just information about these false teachers, what they're like, what they're behaving like. And then he closes with this wonderful doxology. And then just right in between there, between 17 and 23, he begins to lay out what he wants us to do in response. And Jude specifies three things that his readers need to do in order to fight for the faith. And each command is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jude wrote it. So here's the first thing that Jude wants us to do in fighting for the faith. He wants us to remember the apostles' prediction. Remember the apostles' prediction, verses 17 to 19. Let's read those verses together. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, quote, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions, end quote. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So what's he doing? He's saying the apostles warned you that such teachers are going to come along and here's what they said. And then he quotes them. And then he says, now these people are those people. And, of course, we know from the New Testament that Jesus himself predicted such opposition, right? In Matthew 7, he talked about wolves being in sheep's clothing who would come in and not spare the flock. Paul writes in Acts 20, verses 29 and 30, that there would be some from among among their own Ephesian church that would rise up and teach things contrary to what uh, Paul was going to teach. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, talk about that in the last days there's going to be an increase in false teaching. People are going to seek out teachers who are going to teach them what they want to hear. And as a result of that, some people will be led astray. And that may be what's in Jude's mind here. We don't know for certain. Let me make a comment real fast on this last times where it says in verse 18, in the last time there will be scoffers. If you're familiar with your New Testament, you know this phrase, the last days or the last time does not refer to a really concentrated period right before Jesus comes back. It's not like we're not in those times right now. So some people would say, we're not in those times. This is actually talking about a really, really strict time of persecution that's going to happen right at the end of uh, before Christ returns. The phrase, the last days, the last times, refers to the entire period between the first advent and the second advent of Christ. So we are in the last days. We are in the last time. These false teachers are present. We should expect to see them around. And so that's what Jude is wanting to remind this church and us tonight is that Don't forget the predictions of the apostles. Now, in case you weren't aware, false teaching is alive and well. I was reading this this week from Darren Patrick. He's a pastor in St. Louis, and he writes in his book uh, called Church Planner, which is really a book for pastors. But he writes of a time that he interacted with a good friend of his, and I just want to share his story. I remember, Darren writes, I remember having lunch with one of the leaders of the emerging church, Spencer Burke. A former pastor of a megachurch in California, Spencer began to question not only the structure of the church, but the theology of the church. And then he writes, for the record, Spencer Burke is one of the most pleasant people I have ever met, and I consider him a friend. But Spencer had just written his book, A Heretic's Guide to Eternity. That was the title of his book. And because I had not read it, I asked him to give me the lunch version of the book. 
He began to talk, and I suddenly lost my appetite. Without going into everything that was said, these words came out of Spencer's mouth in front of two other pastors. Quote, it doesn't really matter if Jesus came in the flesh. What matters is the idea of Jesus. End quote. Many emotions, Darren writes, thoughts, verses, and even a few MMA chokeholds came to mind. I pressed Spencer on this, hoping that he had misspoken or that I had misunderstood his Southern California surfer vernacular. However, the more I pressed him to clarify the necessity of a historical Jesus, the more it became clear that Spencer was well on his way toward embodying the title of his recent book as defined by the New Testament. The title of his recent book was A Heretic's Guide to Eternity. And Darren's saying he's getting ready to basically fulfill what he's writing against. And he says, I hope that Spencer and others like him will realize the danger of this position and turn back toward the historic and orthodox Christian belief that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, 1 John 4, 2. So it's alive and well. It's out there. And it's showing up in different ways and in different forms. But false teachers and false teaching, especially about the person of Jesus, has been around, will always be around until he comes and is around today. Well, this past week marked the 69th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. The attack by the Japanese drew the United States into World War II, and that attack led to the death of over 2,000 people. President Roosevelt, you remember, addressed the nation the next day and began his speech with the following words, quote, Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Remember I said it. The United States was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. End quote. The reason the attack was so devastating was that it was because it was a sneak attack, right? We didn't know it was coming. We were completely caught off guard, completely surprised. Well, the Church of Jesus Christ has no excuse for a Pearl Harbor sneak attack from false teachers because we have been well-warned, well-warned. And the church that has succumbed to that kind of teaching has, is not reading the Bible or taking the Bible seriously or is simply ignorant that this is happening. God has clearly warned us in his word that such attacks will happen and to be forewarned is to be forearmed, and that's what Jude is calling us to do, to remember that. So do you know that false teachers are in the world? Surely you do. Do you know what they look like? Do you know what they smell like? Not physically, but by their life and by their words and by their teaching. I'm so thankful that I, I pastor a church that is so well-equipped to identify and sniff out error. And not in a way that makes them makes you contentious or mean, but simply because you know the Word of God. And that, that makes for a very happy pastor. But it's not enough just to remember that the, there are false teachers around. Jude calls us to a second responsibility. It's not good enough just to know that they're out there, to know that they're around, and to think, well, we know their error. We're not going to be seduced by them. Jude's admonition, the second, the second command that he gives in this passage, 
may surprise us because what he calls us to do is not only remember the apostle's prediction, but to remain in God's love. So it's not good enough just to know that false teaching is around there and thinking, well, I'm not going to be seduced. Jude doesn't assume that, and we shouldn't either. So number two, point number two is to remain in God's love. Verses 20 and 21, let's read those together. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, Pastor Rich preached a sermon on these verses maybe a year, year and a half ago, and I agree totally with what, with what he did with those verses. He basically said that keep yourselves in the love of God is the main command and that the other three, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ are the ways that we fulfill that command. Um, so keep yourselves in the love of God is the main command, and the how-to, the how-to-do that is those three other participles that he adds, building yourselves up, praying, and waiting. Now, before we get to those, I want to ask two more fundamental questions that I think if you're listening and you've been following along in Jude, you may have these questions as well. The first question is this. If God has promised to keep us, why does he command us to keep ourselves? Did that, I mean, the last week, didn't I spend the whole, whole meditation prior to the Lord's table on God is going to keep you from stumbling. He's able to do that. He's going to preserve you. He's going to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And we already saw in verse 1, Jude says that they're going to be kept. You've been called. You are loved. You are kept. So why then this command to keep ourselves? Well, this letter makes it clear that the security of our salvation ultimately rests in God's promise to keep us. Those are the two bookends of the letter, right? Bookend number one is you're kept for Jesus Christ. The end of the letter says you will be kept for Jesus Christ and by Jesus. But the means by which God does that is through the command to keep ourselves. What God has done and has promised to do for us becomes the basis and incentive for us exercising our responsibility. In fact, the evidence that God is doing a keeping work in your life is you take commands like this dead seriously. People who shrug off this command and say, well, once saved, always saved. Well, I'm kept for Jesus. I don't have to worry about this. That is dangerous. That is really dangerous. But in our souls, the, the soul of a Christian, when they hear you are kept by Jesus and you must keep yourself, they just see this is how God keeps us. This is how God preserves us. He preserves us in part through promises. I will keep you. I'm able to keep you from stumbling and through warnings. Keep yourselves in the love of God. It's both. God is both tender with us. He comes to us with tender words like, I'm going to protect you. I'll be with you. No one's going to take you away from me. No one will be able to snatch you out of my hand. You're my sheep. You know my voice. He comes in promises like that. But he also comes on this other side and warns us, you have a responsibility. Keep yourself in the love of God. Both are true. To ignore or neglect such commands is clear evidence that you are not being kept by God, or at least you shouldn't feel comfortable thinking you are since God keeps his people by enabling them to keep themselves. Now, that leads to a second question. 
What does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? Well, Pastor Rich, when he preached the sermon, said that we are to keep ourselves in the place where we love God the most. We are to do the things that stoke and, and, and fan into flame our love for, for God. And while I totally agree with that, um, I think we get more help from John chapter 15. Would you turn back there with me? John 15, where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. And let's look there briefly. Because Jesus uses this very phrase, remain in my love. Keep yourselves in my love. And this may be what's on what's in Jude's mind. John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus is teaching there are two kinds of people, right? There are those who abide in him, his branches. There are those that do not. Those that who abide in him are, are fruitful. Those who do not abide in him are cut off, thrown into the fire. Just worthless branches. And then he calls his disciples to abide in him repeatedly. That's the repeated command over and over. Abide in me, abide in me, remain in me. Stay connected to me, vitally connected to me, like a branch is on the vine. And then he says, remain in my love. Obey my commands and you will remain in my love. Just as like I obey my father's commands and remain in his love. So I think what's in Jude's mind here is basically don't do what the false teachers are doing. The false teachers are denying Jesus by the way they live. We saw that in verse 4. They're perverting the grace of God into sensuality and denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, don't deny Jesus. Don't deny him. Remain vitally connected to him. Remain in his love. Obey him. Obey what the apostles have said to you. Obey what Jesus has taught you. So therefore, to keep yourselves in the love of God... I think, is to remain connected to Jesus. It is to stay in vital relationship with him, a living, warm, close relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what Jude wants for us. And that's what I think it means to keep ourselves in the love of God. It means to enjoy his love for you and to allow that love to keep your heart warm, your faith vibrant, and your walk close. So then... That leads us to a third question. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God then? So we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. We're to remain vitally connected to Jesus. And Jude gives us three ways to do that. And I'll just talk about these briefly. Number one, he says in verse 20, But you, beloved, and isn't it good that 
Jude says beloved twice in this passage. Listen, when he speaks to us and gives us these commands, he doesn't give them to you so that you will earn God's love for you. Like if you'll do this, if you'll build yourself up on your most holy faith, if you'll pray in the Holy Spirit, if you'll wait, God will love you. He says, no, God already loves you. God loves you. Therefore, get close to the lover of your soul. Draw close to him. So he says, Dear, to, but you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Strange phrase. It's obviously he's using temple imagery here, building yourself, building something. He's saying we build ourselves up in or on your most holy faith. Now, the phrase most holy faith in this letter clearly refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ, as well as other doctrines that affect the gospel. But at the heart, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you look back at verse 3 and 4, where he calls us to contend for the faith, which was once for all entrusted to the saints, delivered to the saints. And then he contrasts that in verse 4 with those who pervert the grace of our God, pervert the grace of our God. So to contend for the faith is to contend for the grace of God, the right understanding of the grace of God. So, And we all know that when Paul thinks of grace, when the apostles think of grace, they always think of Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So the most holy faith at its core is the gospel of the grace of God through Jesus. The freeness of salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, the righteousness of Christ given to us by faith alone, the adoption into God's family, all that. And Paul or Jude writes that the first way that we keep ourselves, we remain vitally connected to Jesus, is by growing in our understanding and application of the gospel in our own lives. Isn't that amazing? Tom Schreiner writes, the first way believers remain in God's love is by continuing to grow in their understanding of the gospel. What a privilege. What a privilege. We get to grow in our understanding of the depth of God's love for us. And as we do that, we are, we are kept in God's love. We are kept close to God. It's through building ourselves up in our most holy faith. I'll come back to talk a little bit more about that near the end of the sermon. A uh, second way that Jude calls us to build, uh, to keep ourselves in the love of God is to pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, praying in the Holy Spirit in this text does not have anything to do with some sort of strange tongue speaking. Rather, it has to do with what Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, that we are to pray in the Spirit in all occasions for all kinds of requests. This just means to pray in such a way as you are dependent on the Holy Spirit. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit as we pray. We are to pray in the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit is to be helping us, assisting us. Um, We are to be relying on him as we pray. So he says, pray. Preach the gospel to yourself. Understand the gospel. Grow in the gospel and pray. So it's God's word coming to us, us responding to God in prayer. Jesus is picking up the relational imagery of the vine, or Jude is picking up the relational imagery of the vine and the branches here. Because Jesus said, if my words remain in you 
and you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. So it's the word of God coming to us, us receiving the word of God, us responding in prayer to God that keeps us connected to Jesus. And that's what Jude is picking up on here, that we receive God's word. God is speaking to us. We, we respond to God in prayer. We're speaking back to God. So we're building and strengthening the relationship of love that exists between God and his people. Third, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, and wait for Jesus. Wait for Jesus. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Isn't, isn't that an amazing thought? We are to, we are to think about Jesus, and we are, when we are to think about him and wait for him, we are to do so with one word on our minds, mercy. Mercy that's going to be brought to us when he returns. The compassion, the love that is going to come to us when he returns. Tom Schreiner again writes, One of the ways by which we continue to grow in our love for God is to continue to long for the day when Jesus will show us his mercy, grant us eternal life, and we will be perfected forever. Those who take their eyes off their future hope will find their love for God is slowly evaporating, and it will be evident that their real love is not for God, but for this present evil age. We cannot take our eyes off the second coming. We cannot. If we take our eyes off the second coming, we will be sucked into this world system. We have to keep our, before our gaze, on our hearts, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes, he's coming for mercy. He's coming to give me eternal life. We have to keep that eternal vision in front of us. Otherwise, we'll get sucked in and, and our loves will become twisted and perverted. And the, this age will crowd out affection for Jesus and love for God. So we have to stay close to God in the word and prayer. And we have to wait. We have to let that lead us to a posture of waiting and hope and joy as we wait for our, our Savior to return. Well, I grew up in a home where we didn't have centralized air, and we had a kerosene heater. <laughs> Those of you who know, like, how, how did our house not burn down? You know, kerosene heaters are so dangerous to have indoors, especially when you set them on the carpet like our family did. And sometimes the gas would spill or the kerosene would spill out on the floor, and I'm like, I'm dead before the night comes. But we used to have this kerosene heater, and it would be very, very cold, much like tonight in the winter. And, and we, would, we would huddle around that kerosene heater before we went to bed because we would have to go upstairs and go off to the far back bedroom, and it was so cold back there. And we used to get all these blankets on top of us. And I can remember waking up sometimes in the middle of the night just to go back downstairs to cuddle around the kerosene heater to get warm again and then go back upstairs and crawl back in my bed or leave my blankets, which is not good either, leave, leave my blankets close to the kerosene heater, not on top of them, but close to the kerosene heater so that when I took them upstairs, they would be a little bit warmer. Well, the only way I, and I, you know, the only way I could avoid getting freezing cold was to stay close to that heater. The only way that I could avoid not catching cold or getting ill or getting sick was to get close to that heater. The only way that we can avoid not getting spiritually cold is to stay really close to Jesus. He is the kerosene heater. And we stay close to him. He warms our hearts. He, he, he enlivens our faith. He gives us fresh hope. And then we're able to reduce, we're, we're able to not be seduced by the, the, the false teachers. We're not going to fall under their spiritual sickness. 
because we are keeping ourselves near the heater of God. Well, the best defense, as they say in sports, is a good offense. And to avoid the influence of false teaching, it's not good enough, as I said, just to be able to identify it. We have to have the spiritual resources sufficient to resist it. And those spiritual resources come through closeness uh, to our relationship with Jesus. So let me apply this to us. Take your spiritual pulse these days. What's the current level of your of your passion for Jesus? Has the eagerness for his return begun to dwindle? How devoted are you to keeping yourself in a place where your love for God is strong and vibrant? How does this currently show up in the way you spend your time, especially your solitude? When everything else is all the responsibilities of the day are done, as I shared with our high schoolers today, um, Archbishop William Tyndale said that a man's religion is what he does with his solitude. And what he was saying is, you know what you really love by the way you spend your free time, by the way when you've got some minutes and your mind can go anywhere it wants to go, where does it go? as a pattern of life. And that pattern of life, of our spiritual pulse is good, should be to Jesus. Even if we're relaxing and enjoying a movie, we don't leave Jesus out of that. We, all of life is lived from him, through him, and to him. And so, how does this currently show up in the way you spend your time as far as your, your, your passion for Jesus? Does it currently show up in your, the, the steps you are taking to better your relationship with him? What are those steps? What, are, what can those steps be where I, can, where I can create a greater climate for greater affection for Jesus in my own life? Well, how will the gospel, prayer, waiting all play into that? You have to answer that question before God. But let me just give you one way that I'm doing that right now. And I hesitate to do this, number one, because I don't want to puff myself up. I don't want to be proud. But I do want to give you a practical way that I'm just hammering this out in my life. And you take it. If it helps you, if you don't, don't feel condemned. This is one pastor's effort to apply this teaching. The two things that I find, my, that I find the hardest to keep up in my life, and I'm sure you do as well, but is remembering the gospel appropriating the gospel to my own soul every day, waking up, because I wake up with a heart that wants to work for God first rather than rest in God, that wants to do for God rather than believe God. And that's not good. That's putting the imperative before the indicative. I want to, that's putting what God has already done before what he wants us to do. So I have to, I thought about this. How right now in my life am I growing, building myself up in the gospel? And how right now am I cultivating prayer and waiting for Jesus? And I, I think I've shared these in other contexts. This is not new for you all who've heard me on this. But it's through two practical emails. These are, these are two ways that I, I try to cultivate love for Jesus and, and prayer because I'm bad at both of them. Number one is the uh, the blog or website of first importance. And the whole purpose, that, bless that brother, the whole purpose is all that guy does is just whatever he's reading, he's a big reader, 
and he'll pull a paragraph from something he's reading that focuses specifically on the work of Christ. And it's just a paragraph. And I read it, and it recalibrates me to reality. It just helps me. It recalibrates me to this is the gospel, this is the good news, nothing that happens in my life today is going to change that. This is God's public declaration for all of human history. And it just helps me to build myself up on the gospel. That's one. The other one is prayer. And I need help in all all the reminders of prayer. That There's plenty of life issues that draw me to that. But one of them is Scotty Smith's blog, Heavenward, which is so helpful. Pastor in t- Tennessee, he just writes prayers every day. And it helps me to open my email in the morning and pray through that with Scotty and use that to fuel my own prayers as well. And just a devotional practice for me. So you all find whatever it is in your life that's going to stoke and feed prayer and the gospel and understanding the gospel and commit yourself to do that for your great joy and your uh, and, and as a means of keeping yourself in the love of God. So number three, number three. We are to, so to fight for the faith, we must, number one, remember the apostles' prediction. Number two, remain in God's love. And number three, rescue the enemy's captives. Rescue the enemy's captives, verses 22 and 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, some see this passage as kind of talking about stages of influence that people are encountering with the false teachers. There's like these people who have like kind of just begun to believe their teaching and they're starting to doubt the Christian faith. And so Judah is saying, have mercy on those people. And then there's the second kind of people who are like really starting to take in the teaching of false teachers and Jude saying they're on the verge of hell, snatch them out of it. And then there's this third class of people, which Jude would say are the false teachers themselves that we're not even to get around. We're to hate even the garment stained by the flesh and we're to avoid them. I have a little bit of problem with that interpretation. Let me give you one reason why. Because in verse 22, he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Verse 20, or that is verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Verse 22, Two says, have mercy on those who doubt. So those who doubt, those who don't believe, are they? do they need to be snatched as well and helped and caught? Well, yes. So what I'm thinking here is I think Jude is primarily giving general counsel to this church, saying the people who have been influenced by this teaching, you need to do three things with them. And here they are. Have compassion on them. Take action, but be careful. I think that's his general counsel. To all these people, have compassion on them, take action, and be careful. So let me take one of those one at a time. Have compassion. He says in verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. In other words, there's going to be times in our life where brothers and sisters, even in our own church, are going to struggle with serious doubts. They're going to struggle with doubts about the Christian faith, about God's promises. And our posture towards them should not be one of shunning them 
nothing like that. Rather, we should have compassion on them, get close to them, and help them. That's Jude's call. Jude says, have compassion on those who doubt. Don't shun them. Don't reject them. Don't reject the young Christian who's just become a Christian. And if you remember, if you were converted out of a pretty wicked lifestyle, you know that it often gets worse before it gets better in the life of young Christians. They have this initial surge of obedience and sin breaks off their life and then they start to get back into the run, you know, the, the, the race of life a little bit and just the old sin patterns start to creep back in. And Jude says, have mercy. Be compassionate towards those people. Secondly, don't just feel mercy. <laughs> don't just feel compassion. Take action. And remember, he's writing this to, our, to a church, not just the pastors. He's, he's not writing this just to say, okay, call the pastor when you know somebody, something like this is happening. Of course. You know. But first, personally, have compassion on the person, go after them, and, and take action to help them. That's why he says, save others. Save others. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. They're, they're walking along the brink here. They're in danger of falling right off the cliff. And he says, get out there, wrap your arms around them, and pull them back. Take action. Have compassion. Take action. And then be careful. But be careful, he says. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude used a pretty crude image here. He says, we are to, we are to look at sin like dirty underwear. We are to be that repulsed. By sin. So this person who is caught in sin, we're to have compassion on them, take action toward them, but we are to despise the sin. We are to despise it. We are to hate. Jude says actually to hate it. To hate even the garment stained by the flesh. And the garment he's referring to is the undergarment. So we don't have any image. We have helpful imagery here. He's saying, you know how gross that is to walk in and see that dirty underwear on the bedroom floor? that you've told your husband to pick up 15 times and it's still sitting there, says, and it's just getting gross. We've been killing mice like crazy in our house, and it's getting gross. It's getting gross. And um, and I, I just, I was repulsed the other night. Katie was saying, go get it. And I'm like, I don't want to. <laughs> and I was just so disgusted by it. And I'm thinking, is that the way I feel about my sin? It's so easy as we continue to grow in the Christian life and continue to, to, to just to some, think about this. I'll put it this way. Are there sins right now in your life that you still struggle with, but that you are no longer nearly as repulsed by as you used to be? That's bad. That's dangerous. We need to have a growing sensitivity to our sin, not a a growing desensitivity to it. And what Jude's saying here is that we need to have that kind of ugh, ugh, to sin. Not to the person, but to the sin. We should have that kind of reflex that pushes us away like the mouse caught in the trap or the underwear on the floor. Gross. Don't want it. And the only way that that sin won't tempt you is if something more beautiful then that sin is captivating your heart in those moments. And that's why Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God before you do this. 
you remember if you've ever ridden on an airline, ridden on the airplane, you know what they say when they does anyone listen to the stewards, stewardesses? Uh, but you know, one thing they always say is they have the mask come down, they hold it and pull it back, and they say, "Please secure your mask before helping others." That's what Jude's calling us to do right here. Secure your mask before you go trying to put one on another person. Because if you don't, you're not going to have the spiritual resources to help them. You're going to be temp- perhaps be tempted. This is what Paul said in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is you, one of you is caught in a transgression, let those who are spiritual among you restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but do so carefully lest you be tempted also. So Galatians 6.1 is saying, listen, our spiritual condition matters in our effectiveness to help people. It really does. As Charles Bridges says, the greatest, I think it's Charles Bridges, the greatest need of my people is my own walk with God. It's my greatest need as a pastor. That's our greatest need, period, for, for ministry, is to love, pe- to love God first and foremost, to cultivate that deep personal relationship with God, and then out of that relationship with God, we are able to help others, show mercy to them, have compassion on them, take action for them, and resist their influence. But some might be saying, here, I, I understand what you're saying, but I don't want to do that because I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm afraid that I'll succumb to that influence. Well, I would have two words of counsel if you're, if you're nervous. If, if the thought of helping others and entering into that causes you a little bit of trepidation, I would say one of two things. Number one, you're not called to do it by yourself. <laughs> okay. Number two, keep yourselves in the love of God, cultivate your own walk with God, and cultivate and help others cultivate their walk with God. But believe also the promise of verse 24 and 25. Why do you think Jude kind of tacks on this doxology, says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless? What does he want to do? Maybe, perhaps, he's thinking, I know how people might respond to this. Snatch others by saving them out of the fire. Go after them. Go after them. But what if they influence us? They've crept in already. We didn't even notice. We're going to be taken too. And he says, believe the promises of God. Have faith in God. He is able to keep you. He will keep you. He will help you. So move. Strengthen your own walk. with Make make sure you remain close to God and then reach out and rescue the enemy's captives. Let me ask you this question. Do you notice when people aren't around here? One of the first signs that a person is drifting is they stop attending public meetings of the church. That's not always the case because we can sit here and be far from God and be right at the public meetings of the church every Sunday. But typically it shows up in that way. And are you aware of them? Is it on your radar screen? I hope it is. Do you take at least take note of the people in your care group? You know, it's like you can't you can't be responsible for everybody and know where everybody is. But are the people in my are, are they showing up? Are they are they here? Are they? And if not, are you compassionate toward them? And do you seek to contact them, email them, check in with them, call them? That's the kind of posture that Jude wants us to have. He wants us to just have that compassionate, 
heart that takes action and takes sin seriously and is committed to loving each other in those sometimes awkward ways. So let me conclude. To fight for the faith, we have to know our identity, know our enemy, know our responsibility, and know our Savior. We fight for the faith, brothers and sisters, not like the crusaders of the Middle Ages. Because Jesus reminds us that the kingdom of God for which we fight is not of this world. We are not fighting for real estate in the Middle East. We are fighting for the reign of God and the souls of people. That's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for that in our own hearts. God, crush every idol in my heart that wars itself against joy in Christ. That's what we're fighting for. And we're fighting for that for our brothers and sisters as well. True Christians don't kill to advance their cause. They die to themselves to advance Christ's cause. They contend for their own hearts first. They aren't predominantly concerned first and foremost with the sins of others. They're first and foremost concerned with their own sins. They cultivate their own relationship with Jesus through the word of God and prayer and encouraging others to do the same. And then they go out and out of that they contend for the hearts of other people by reaching out to them in compassion, taking action to save them and all the while watching over their own hearts that they might not be led away themselves. This is how Christians fight for the faith. So let's join the battle, and let's pray. Father, we can't go very long in thinking about a message like this and without praying for Dean and Becky and those who have wandered away Um, Father, we pray that you would, we pray that you would rescue them and that you would call us in whatever ways that we can to, to have mercy, to take action, but to be careful. Father, we greatly desire you to make the calls that we've made and the appeals that we've made and perhaps the letters that we've written effective for their recovery, and so we pray that you would have mercy on them. We also pray for ourselves. We pray that you would help us to take this word from Jude very seriously, by grace, but very seriously. We are the called. We are the loved. We are the kept. We are those who right now your pronouncement over is that you will keep us from stumbling and that you will present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy. Nevertheless, there is a present evil age in which we live that is going to meet us right outside of these doors. It doesn't even have to meet us outside of these doors. It's resident in our own hearts. And so we pray that you will enable us this week to take practical steps to cultivate our relationship with you and to encourage each other in that, to build ourselves up, not just this individual private experience, but corporately helping each other, nurturing our faith in the gospel, praying for one another, and modeling an eagerness that draws out the eagerness of others. So please help us, God. We are totally dependent on that very same mercy that saved us initially to keep us saved. We thank you for keeping us saved. And we thank you for your promise to do so. Now watch over us as we as we go home. Please protect us on the roads, and um, and bring us 
uh, back together for our care groups on Wednesday to encourage each other, to build one another up, to strengthen each other's confidence in the gospel as we eagerly wait for the return of Jesus together, which we pray would be soon. Amen.